Hey everybody, Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and it's our privilege to have with us Guy Zyman who is a specialist in blast protection and leads for Tement. Guy, good morning, good to have you with us. Good morning and good afternoon and it's a pleasure to be there. Uh, now we're co-members of the Disaster Researchers and Disaster Management Professionals Group and it was great to see the different posts that you put into the group there and for me I have no experience in blast protection and what you do so why don't you just tell us and share with us some of your experiences and how you came to be with Timon. Well uh, once again thank you for having me here and uh, I'm with uh, Temet. Temet is a group of companies specialized in sheltering uh, equipment um, mostly in the, the field in, of the blast and CBRN protection, collective protection only. And um, we don't do only uh, blast protection, uh, we take the whole uh, of a shelter as a holistic uh, solution to offer to our customers. Uh, to relate it to the emergency preparedness, we believe that uh, you can be as prepared uh, as you want, but if somebody bomb your uh, headquarters, you're going to run like a chicken without a head. And that's uh, something that we cannot afford. And so first of all, there are a few critical infrastructure that must be protected and they must function fully, actually, uh, over their 100% in emergencies. You were asking about how did I get to this uh, position and this company, or should I talk more about uh, Tenet? Yeah, that'd be great. Tell us how you came to be interested in your role and joined the company. Well, I, uh, I've been doing quite a lot of different uh, uh, fields of business in my uh, history. And I came to a company in Israel called Betel Industries, uh, who is one of the leading company in uh, blast protection and CBRN protection for mobile applications mainly. Also stationary, but more, mostly armored vehicles and so on, or uh, containers and etc. And I was working there for about nine years and I did a lot of interesting projects and a lot of development. And then I got an offer from Temet in Finland, who was the leader and is the leader uh, worldwide in uh, shelter protection and stationary applications. And I joined the company as a VP of sales, of international sales, and I realized that uh, one of the missing things in Temet is the business development and the, uh, the understanding that you must educate the, the, the people, the client, we don't have a direct client. This is very interesting for this kind of business. We uh, Basically, it's, it's like uh, marketing 101 in the university that you have the purchaser, but you have the buyer that pay for it. You have the influencer that uh, will influence the decision. And all those roles are uh, uh, easily identified in a project of a shelter. Uh, for example, if you take the end user, which is many talking about uh, military shelters, it's the military. But they normally, within the military, they are not the one who is paying, it's the Ministry of Defense. And there is another segment, uh, another uh, uh, organization that defines the needs, the threat analysis, what should be there, what kind of protection is required, and what kind of tools are required for that specific project. 
And then you have a design company that's going to design the project. They're going to design it until 30 or 60, depends on the project percent of the, of the design. And then they're going to transfer it to a construction company who's going to be the prime. They're going to lead the project. And uh, another company, sometimes it's a different company, will complete the design to 100%. And the construction company based normally is working with us. So there are so many steps before they even can approach it, before it even goes on uh, to mm. a tender, if it goes out to a tender. So there is a lot of education that needs to be done. And I think that in general, you will agree, uh, and I think everybody in our business will agree that the, the public is not well educated in emergency preparedness. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a good reminder for emergency professionals about all the different pieces of the puzzle and the different people who make decisions along the way. I think to anchor it into people's understanding, why don't you tell us about Fukushima and, and your experience there? Yeah. Well, um, Fukushima, when I started working with uh, uh, Bethel Industries, uh, one of my target market was Japan. And Japan, as you all know, is a very... Uh, tough market to penetrate. Uh, they have a very uh, strict requirement and quality assurance and uh, mm. and also they are not open to the to discover uh, everything their uh, state secret and to talk about different events and different needs and product and facilities. It's very rare in Japan. And um, a year after I joined uh, Bethel, Fukushima disaster happened, which was horrible. If anyone knows Japan and been there, uh, I lived in Japan for a couple of years. And coming back to Japan after Fukushima, when everything was dark, many of the streetlights were dark. It was really uh, horrible. And the whole Fukushima event, in my pr own perspective, was a matter of emergency preparedness. First of all, there were there was a report that was issued before the the disaster saying that there will be a, a, an earthquake, there will be a high tsunami wave of estimated. I think it was estimated in the report about 12 to 15 meters high, uh, and uh, that was a couple of years before that. Uh, the Fukushima Daiichi power plant decided to take it not that serious and made a lower seawall to protect from the tsunami. The, there is another power plant that, uh, about 20, 30 kilometers north of that, also on the coastline, who took the report very seriously, had a very high seawall and was actually uh, was a shelter, a safe haven during the disaster to other people that had to escape from their home and was not damaged at all. Then secondly, the command center in the Fukushima uh, power plant was destroyed because of the, the rolling event and they could not control it. Then the secondary off-site command center was also contaminated with the, the pollution, so they could not uh, uh, manage the event from there. The third off-site uh, command center, which is about 20 kilometers away, was already occupied with uh, vacancy, uh, evacuated people that were evacuated to, to that center. So there was also, um, they were not in their natural environment to control and manage the situation well. 
And I think it caused, uh, I don't know if that's the reason that it caused, but I think radiological in, in event in general caused a lot of radiophobia. Uh, people are afraid. They don't know what, mm. it, what it means because on one hand, the radiological uh, um, therapy cures us. And on the other hand, too much radiological exposure will kill us. Where does yeah. the, um, the line goes? So uh, a lot of people were evacuated. Uh, you should see images of hospitals there with wheelchairs are thrown on the side because people were rushed into helicopters, elderly people, and uh, evacuated by choppers. There was one hospital that had, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, a 300, that was still a decade ago, 341 patients in that hospital and 50 patients died within the next few days after that, after the event, because of the evacuation, because of the rush and the emergency and the panic that was there. I'm not blaming or criticizing the Japanese. Nobody was really well prepared for such a scenario. But mm. we do need to study and to learn from that and to think for the future, what should we do? And, and because of that event, um, I, I went to the government, the Japanese government, together with our agent in Japan, and start talking about preparedness. What should you do? Why, why should you evacuate those people? Because 99 or 98% of the people can evacuate by themselves. There is only a limited number of people that you need to protect. You need to provide them time to have an orderly evacuation. And then we uh, initiate, they initiated the project uh, of protecting the facilities, the civilian facilities around the power plants uh, throughout Japan. This was a huge project, a lot of money invested in that. And uh, uh, the idea was to uh, create in those places where you need to evacuate people, you need time to prepare the buses, to prepare the choppers, however you're going to, to actually to evaluate the, the scenario. Do you really need to evacuate them? And so we created the shelter, like not to protect from blast actually, but to protect from the contaminate, contaminants in the air. Uh, same concept of a shelter, over-pressurizing uh, the shelter in order to protect it from uh, elsewhere. And maybe this is a good chance to give a, uh, shelter 101 quick brief uh, to our Please audience. Uh, a shelter, uh, as far as an airborne threat protection, is kind of like a, a balloon. You inflate, uh, only clean air goes through the filters uh, into the shelter and you uh, regulate the outlet of the air. That will create a balloon scenario that it's like the shelter is like pushing outward and the air. If there is any crack in the wall or in the any anywhere, the air will only go outwards and cannot come in. So any wind gas or explosion outside cannot push the contaminant inside the shelter. Mm. And the fresh air goes only through the filters. And, and uh, there were quite a few projects that are very successful and very, very nice and in a very Japanese way done very clean and neat. So I just want to pick up on some things that you said there. So in Japan, there was a report 
that warned about the earthquake or an earthquake and warned about the scale or the size of the wave that needed to be prepared for. And one of the nuclear plants further down actually did respond to that and prepared prepared for that scenario, even though it wasn't guaranteed to happen. uh, They did actually prepare for it. And one of the bigger failings in the response was that the commands, one command center was um, destroyed and the pollution was a problem, so they couldn't use it. And then the one, other one, one was, full. was destroyed of the explosion and the yes. flood and everything. Yes. So there were not the redundancies that need to be built into this system of responding to an emergency in case one is destroyed or there is pollution. There needed to be redundancies built into the system. Does that capture that? Uh, let me uh, refine it a little bit. They, they had redundancy. They actually had triple redundancy because they had the on-site control center, the off-site, which is about a few kilometers away from the power plant, and the secondary off-site, which is about 20 to 30 kilometers away from the uh, power plant. So they had the redundancy. They were prepared, but they did not protect their asset. This is the most critical asset right. that must be protected. Without it, nobody uh, uh, can act, can function well. Uh, if you if you want, I had um, when I needed to break down into very simple words of what are we protecting and so on, and in how, what you need to protect in emergency preparedness. And I said, okay, there there is first of all there is the head. The, our our body cannot function without our mind. And we need to protect it. So all the command centers, all the headquarters, all the critical infrastructure that without it, people don't think of that. Uh, uh, the power plant in any country, not necessarily a nuclear in Japan, it's just a power plant. If there is an emergency, somebody should be there in the emergency to switch on the light if there is a problem or to, to tell the forces where is the problem and fix it. Otherwise, we won't have electricity. If he's running to his shelter and nobody is there, we're not going to mm-hmm. have electricity. So all those basic function and, and uh, I call them the mind, the head, that con- allow us to control the situation. The second uh, uh, function that we must have is the hands. People that going, the forces that going, the first responders, they need to be protected. This is a different kind of protection. They need to have a personal protection equipment and they need to go into the scene to protect. And all of those, uh, the mind and the hands are working to protect the heart. And the heart is the civilians. And the human mm-hmm. lives, and the the every, every citizen and every human that we need to protect, and those two have to function at a hundred percent during emergency in order to protect humans. The shelter that you were just talking about, it was like a balloon. It was pressurized, so it made sure that the air was going outwards, not coming in. Can you tell us some more of the the features of a sh- of different shelters, some of the innovations? Um, sure. Um, okay. Um, I'll go general, and if you want me to go in, uh, I'm a, basically I originally I'm a salesperson, so I can talk for four minutes or four hours. Just give me a subject, <laughs> no problem. But um, a shelter has basically two parameters: the blast parameters and the gas tight parameters, because it protects from two main uh, threats: that's explosion and uh, non-conventional weapons or contaminants, whether it's uh, TIC, toxic industrial chemicals, or chemical warfare. 
so the outer perimeter is the blast perimeter that should protect the, uh, the envelope of the facility against any blast. It can be an underground shelter, it can be above ground shelter, it can be a, a bedrock shelter. It doesn't matter. And according to the threat analysis, you have to define what kind of blast protection this parameter must have. Um, there are shelters with uh, 30 centimeters, 300 millimeters of uh, wall thickness, and there are uh, shelters of three meters uh, wall thickness. Depends of what what are you protecting and how important is your asset, okay? And uh, how critical is the function? And also what is the threat analysis? And then you have uh, the, uh, and everything have to be holistic. The blast doors, the blast windows, blast valves to protect the air opening, um, escape hatch, um, etc. So there are many, many different factors that need to be taken into consideration of the design team. And then you have the gas type parameter, which basically that's the balloon that we're talking about. And that is protecting uh, the TFA, the to toxic free area that inside the shelter from any contaminants. And again, contaminants can be, um, I think the, the, the modern term is CBRN chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Um, chemical will be chemical warfare, which is gases, and uh, can be also toxic industrial chemicals, which are, um, if you think about it, um, most terrorist uh, uh, groups or any uh, other than big nations cannot get their hand on chemical warfare, but they cannot, they can do a conventional explosion on non-conventional uh, contaminants and create an unconventional event. Right. And people will be just as scared as it was a, a big country that made a big explosion. If you have now a, a chlorine tanker explosion explode in the in some city, that will create panic. And people will think that there is a CBRN attack, an unconventional attack. So back to the... Uh, to the chemical, that's the chemical. The biological is all the virus, bacteria, uh, biological weapons, etc. Radiological, it's the uh, the uh, the fallout of the um, any right. kind of nuclear event, and the nuclear is the mostly considered to be the gases that uh, can be the iodine or the cesium or different uh, radioactive gases that uh, um, go disperse to the air when there is any kind of fusion. Um, all those, and it sounds just simple, four pillars, but inside them there is subgroup and subcategories. And just to give a brief idea, the EU has a list of over 100,000 uh, different uh, TIC, toxic industrial chemicals, that hazardous materials. That's a huge number, and mm. we need to make some kind of compromise in the protection. Yeah. So I'm just imagining in my in my mind these shelters can either be temporary or really set up really quickly because there's been a disaster and there needs to be a shelter established for the command center or for other reasons. And then these could be permanent as well. So can you give us an idea of some other disaster response situations that you've been involved in or Timmet has been involved in? 
Uh, I, first of all, that's that's a great point that you just made. Um, our belief, and many uh, countries do that, is that shelters must be dual use. And the reason is that we build a shelter uh -huh. and we put it aside for the next two or three or four or, or forever, two or three decades or forever. Normally, a shelter is designed for about 30 years standby. Um, and, and we wish we never use it. If it's uh -huh. used as a dual use, meaning that during normal time, it operates uh, in different function, I will explain about it in a second, then the maintenance of the structure is ongoing. And mm -hmm. the, the whole shelter is kept at a very good condition and ready for uh, uh, for the order to transform to in, transform into a shelter. And I give you an interesting example from uh, Finland, for example. Uh, in Finland, there uh, there is a swimming pool. In my old neighborhood, there was a swimming pool there that was actually a shelter. It's an underground swimming pool. There is uh, all the sports facilities uh, underground. There are shelters, subway stations. Obviously, that's a easy uh, example. Uh, parking lots, storage facilities, everything that uh, uh, can use the space easily and doesn't need some uh, sunlight. And that's uh, making sure that the shelter is at a good condition when we need it. Hmm. That answered your question. Yeah, that's really good. So this, these shelters that you're talking about, a swimming pool that's underground, you mean the facilities is, mm -hmm. is dual use. So it can be a shelter in a times of crisis, but on an ongoing day-to-day -day basis, people are using it for recreation. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. I'll give you another interesting example in uh, Israel. In the north of Israel, there is a hospital called the Rambam Hospital in the city of Haifa. And the uh, that hospital have several shelters. Some um, critical function cannot go underground, so they have to be protected above ground, like the surgery room, uh, the blood bank is actually above ground, the ICU and so on. And uh, all the parking lot, the three floors of the parking uh, garage are actually an emergency hospital for 2,000 beds in case of emergency, fully CBRN protected and can function for a very long time uh, under that threat. And they have, these are the people that uh, have the time and can be brought down to the shelter because they are not in surgery and not in critical uh, situations. And in the parking lot, there is already assembled in the wall uh, plugs for the oxygen, electricity, uh, wow. location for the beds, everything is ready. And that's easy to maintain because it's everyday use and and clean. It's fascinating. Guy, just before we wrap up, could you share with us for some people that are really interested in this aspiring professionals who would like to work in this area, what sort of advice would you give them if they wanted to enter this industry or do something like you do? Well, uh, two things. First of all, uh, about the industry, uh, I think that... Uh, as, as I uh, was involved in changing the mission of Temet and making it very brief and very short, saving life, period. This is our mission now. We all, from the production guy, everybody is in saving lives. And when you have that mission, I think it gives you much more energy to do and, and, and motivation to do much more things um, and do it better because everything is important. You cannot make a mistake because that will cause human life. 
That's one thing. Second, uh, about uh, being a manager, being an executive and, and uh, going into the either the uh, governmental or the private sector, uh, believe in yourself. You have more to share and more to contribute than you think of. Um, when I was a young salesperson, I wrote um, in, in the early, in the beginning of the millennium, around the year 2000, I wrote a newsletter and I had a thousand uh, followers and now you know a thousand followers it's, it's nothing because we are in the internet age but back then there was not too many people that had that reading the newsletter and i was surprised how many people are reading the the my modest newsletter they want to know to knowledge is power you provide them knowledge you provide them information that's a lot of power and they will look at you at somebody that can help them it doesn't matter if they are very, very senior president of the association, president of the university, or, or government official or minister. They are human beings and they need to have some support. They cannot do everything by themselves and you can provide that. Believe in yourself and they believe it too. That's really great, Guy. One of the things that we encourage our bachelor and master's students particularly to do is to consider themselves as thought leaders. So when they're doing their research, doing their dissertation, we want them to publish it online so that then they can start having conversations with people in the industry at different levels um, so that they can make a contribution, share that knowledge, get feedback and really lead the conversation. I love that you said that. So have a mission, believe in yourself and engage in those conversations. Yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. Guys, I, mean, I really want to thank you for giving us your time. I, I know that you're very busy. Um, it's great that you've shared your experiences, particularly with Fukushima. I've learned a lot more about the shelters, the different types of shelters. And I, and I have to say it was a, a light bulb moment for me to think about the dual use and the standby or actually being used for day-to-day -day purposes. But that means that the maintenance is ongoing for these yes. shelters rather than something waiting to be used. If also, it's the, the initial really also the Sorry? initial cost. Also the initial cost is also shared. Right. And having that, that parking lot that actually has in the wall uh, the different plugs ready for it to be used for that emergency response, the thinking ahead. Um, that I, Obviously, that takes time, it takes money, it takes thought, but the saving the lives is is what it's all about, just like your mission with Timid. Yes, I think that the making the difference between a parking lot and a shelter parking lot, the difference mm -hmm. is not that big. Creating mm -hmm. a shelter just to be a shelter, that's a big investment. That's a big, mm -hmm. uh, that big difference. It was my pleasure to be here, and uh, you're welcome to call me back again anytime. And I think, as I said, educating everybody is a mission that we need to do, everybody in emergency preparedness. Spread the word as much as possible. And if you or anyone has a question, you're welcome to contact me uh, during my Thank LinkedIn you. or email. That's great. So I just, for everyone who's watching this, particularly in the recording and for our students uh, and people in our uh, disaster preparedness groups, 
um, in our description underneath uh, the video in Facebook and LinkedIn and on YouTube. I've got Guy's LinkedIn uh, address there as well, so you can reach out to Guy there. And for everybody else who's watching this, if you wish to pursue a bachelor degree or a master's degree in emergency response and risk management, please do reach out to us. We've got the links underneath the video. We have a new way of delivering our program as well so that you can be anywhere anytime learning and also if you are an experienced emergency manager and you have training and certificates and every emergency manager I know and Guy knows would have a big folder full of certificates because emergency managers are always training we will recognize and give credit and recognition for all of your training and your experience as well so you can finish your degrees faster recognizing the contribution that you've made. Guy please don't go after we end the video love to have some more chat with you Thanks everybody for being with us.